You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Excellent. If, if you are male here, please stand. Yeah, if you're a bloke in the room, I'd love you to stand. Come on, let's give these guys a round of applause. It's great having them in the room. I'm not sure if they're feeling the love yet. They need to feel the love because I'm just about to punch them in the eyes. Guys, listen carefully, take a seat. Before I finish our series on the book of Judges, we are looking at the book of Judges. We've called it Autonomy. This is week eight. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I thought I would show a video which gives you an overview of the whole book of Judges. You can download these off YouTube or I think it's the Bible Project. I can give you a connection. So if ever you're reading a book in the Bible, you think, what's an overview This is one. So we're going to show you one on the book of Judges, and then I'm going to talk about the last story, which is chapters 19 to 21. So let's go. The book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the promised land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now, remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. 
This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. Now, the stories of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, they are epic adventures. They're also extremely bloody stories. Either the judge themselves or people who help the judge, they defeat their enemies and deliver the people of Israel. The stories about the next three judges are longer, and they focus in on the character flaws of the judges, which get increasingly worse. So Gideon, he begins pretty well. He's a coward of a man, but he eventually comes to trust that God can save Israel through him. And so he defeats a huge army of Midianites with only 300 men carrying torches and clay pots. But Gideon has a nasty temper, and he murders a bunch of fellow Israelites for not helping him in his battle. And then it all goes downhill from there. He makes an idol from the gold that he won in his battles. And then after he dies, all Israel worships the idol as a God, and the cycle begins again. The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills. And when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story, it shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, violent, and arrogant. He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note here. You'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even any of their decisions. God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt leaders. And so work with them, he does. This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore, and that's just the leaders. The final section shows Israel as a whole hitting bottom. There are two tragic stories here, and they are not for the faint of heart. They're structured by this key line that gets repeated four times at the close of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first story is about an Israelite named Micah who builds a private temple to an idol, and that gets plundered by a private army sent from the tribe of Dan. So they come and they steal everything, and then they go and burn down the peaceful city of Laish and murder all of its inhabitants. It's a horrifying story. When Israel forgets its God, might makes right. The final story of the book is even worse. It's a shocking tale of sexual abuse and violence, which all leads to Israel's first civil war. It's very disturbing. And that's the point. These stories are meant to serve as a warning. Israel's descent into self-destruction is the result of turning away from the God who loves them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And now Israel needs to be delivered again from themselves. 
The only glimmer of hope in this story is found in this repeated line in the last part of the book. It actually forms the last sentence of the story. Israel has no king. And so the stage is set for the following books to tell the origins of King David's family, the book of Ruth, and also the origins of kingship itself in Israel, the book of First Samuel. But the story of Judges has value as a tragedy. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And that's the book of Judges. Well, so hopefully that gives you an overview of this whole book of the Bible that we've been looking at for the last seven weeks. The story we're going to look at today was that last section that on YouTube they weren't prepared to talk about. Hosea, the prophet, refers to this story as they have sunk deep into corruption as in the days of Gibeah. God will remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. So what we're going to look at this morning is one of those graphic images that you hope changes everything. I remember as a teenager, one of the graphic images that did that for me was Band-Aid, as it became known as. Suddenly on our television, you had Bob Geldof, in case you don't recognize this, is Sir Bob now, who went and, and witnessed such poverty around the world that he thought, we've got to try and do something. So we got all these musicians together and did this amazing thing. This was meant to be an image that struck at our hearts. I was at university when two miles away, Stephen Lawrence was killed. I guess that was another image that burnt on our minds at the time. We thought, why on earth would somebody in London be attacked over the color of their skin? I guess this image was meant to root out racism. I guess for all of us in this last week, the image of one year ago has really stuck in our mind. As we pause to remember 72 people that were literally killed a year ago. I guess the final image that I wanted to project, though, was of a boy that was washed up on the shore of Turkey. This was a refugee from Syria, and uh, he got washed over the boat, and this child is found dead. I don't even remember. This was a Turkish police officer that literally finds somebody's child washed up dead as people were saying, we won't let any more boats in here. And yet these kind of images are still impacting us this week. I find it shocking that the continent that we're a part of is still turning away boats saying we don't want to help. And so I guess in some respect, having all these images helps us as we then come and look at this chapter, which for the Israelites would have been an image like this. The story, which it didn't tell you, I'm going to tell in my own words. Um, I was going to say, you may not want to read it on Father's Day. I would encourage you, all the Bible is God-inspired. Read chapter 19, 20, and 21 at another time. I'm going to summarize the story like this. A Levite took a concubine from a place in Bethlehem. However, the woman was unfaithful to him and she ended up running away back to her father. 
After four months, the Levite decides to go and get her back. The father-in-law is pleasant and hospitable, and the two men sit there and eat and drink together for three days. On the fourth day, he says, I want to take my concubine and I want to go back home. But he ends up giving him more to eat and drink. So he stays another day. On the fifth day, the Levite says, right, I'm going to go back home. And the father-in-law says, no, no, stay and have some more. Eventually, in the afternoon, he gets up and goes. Whilst traveling back with his donkey and his servant, he decides not to stay in Jerusalem because the people of God are not running that city at that time. But instead, they go to a place called Geba. No one from the tribe of Benjamin offers them anywhere to stay. They sit in the, in the, the square, which in those days, if you sat there, it was like, like Airbnb. You didn't sort of attract somebody. You sat there and people said, oh, you need somewhere to stay? You come and stay at my house. This old man welcomes them back and they're back at his house and they're having something to eat and drink and they've looked after the animals. When suddenly there's this violent knocking at the door as some wicked men from the city surround the house and say to the owner, give us the men in your house, we want to have sex with them. The owner is incensed and says, you can't do this, they're guests in my house. He offers his own virgin daughter and the concubine. The men outside are not prepared for this. They don't listen. And so in the end, the Levite throws out his concubine and the rest of them stay in the house. All we know is they rape and abuse her throughout the night and at dawn let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master, interesting change of name, was staying and fell at the door and lay there until daybreak. When the Levite gets up, he steps out of the house to continue his journey and sees the woman lying on the door. He says to her, get up. She does not respond, so he puts her on his donkey and sets out for home. When he reaches home, the Levite takes out a knife He cuts up this woman's body, limb by limb, into 12 parts and sent them to all the areas of Israel. Everyone's saying, Pete, is this in the Bible? I'm not making this up. This is the word of God. 400,000 men gather together and ask the Levite to explain the story. His account was, I would consider, a slight manipulation of the truth. But they believe what he says and promise to revenge this terrible act. The tribe of Benjamin, because you know there was 12 tribes, you saw that, were not prepared to give up the men of Geba and instead gather their own army of about 26,000 and say, we're not going to let you take these evil men. They have a fight. The, the Israelites, the 11 tribes, lose on the first day. They then go back for a fight on the second day, and they lose again. On the third day, before going to fight, they weep before God. They fast and say, God, should we fight? God says, go and fight. As they're attacking the city, they pull back. The Benjamites come charging out after them. Another lot slipping round the back. They end up wiping out the whole place. 
The women, the children, the animals, the whole lot is killed. 600 men from this whole tribe manage to escape and they flee to the desert. Suddenly the Israelites think, oh no, what's happened? We've just wiped out one of our tribes. There was 12 tribes of this people. Not only had they done this, but when they'd gone into the battle, they'd made a vow. And they said to God, we will not let any of our daughters marry the Benjamites because they're not good. They now think, look, we've got 600 men and no one can marry them. That tribe will die. They then have a quick whisper around and they discover that one tribe some people had not come from. It was a place called Kabesh Gilead. And they had not made this oath. So what these, the, these people decide to do is they said, right, we're going to send 12,000 soldiers down to this one place. We're going to kill all the men and the women. And if we can find any virgins there, we'll take them. So they, they kill the whole place and they find 400 virgins. And they then go to the Benjamites and say, there you go, there's 400. And the other 200 say, well, that's not fair. We still haven't got anyone. This is all in the Bible. So then what they say is, look, there's a a party going on. This is now my interpretation of it, but you can read it here. He said, there's a party going on, and the virgins do this dance. And when they start dancing out into the vineyards, you can nick 200 of them. They've not agreed to give them to you, so they've not broken the oath. And so these Benjamites hide in the vineyards, and when these girls come out dancing, they literally grab 200, they take them home, and so they've now got 600 virgins, and the, and the city, the people are saved. Wow. What a story. A difficult story to read, and a more difficult story to interpret. I'm glad I'm running out of time. Obviously, I'd have lots to say, but we're going to have to keep this one short. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we do believe that this is your inspired word. Oh, God, I bet none of us have got this on our fridge. But we want to hear from you in it. I pray that you would speak to us. Let our hearts be open. God, when I saw that picture of that boy on that beach in Turkey, it just made me want to weep. That's somebody's child. God, I'm sure the Israelites would have looked at this story and wept and thought, God, what a time. God, I pray that you'd break our hearts for how you see things. That we don't just have an image and pass it on and nothing happens. I pray that you'd speak to us through this image today so that we're different. Amen. So there's three things that I'm going to say. I'm just quickly going to look at the characters in this. And like I say, you may want to ask me some questions afterwards. I'm not saying I can answer them all. The first thing is this, the Levite. We discover something about this Levite. A concubine, in case you weren't sure. A concubine in those days had all the duties of a wife but none of the privileges. So basically, a concubine was about sex and status for the guy, but she had no privilege at all. I guess already I think there's parallels to this story that I'd rather didn't happen. 
just in our lifetime, the whole hashtag not me comes out, where women have been treated as products rather than people. As a church, I don't think we can throw stones upon this because our own history has probably been checkered. What else do we discover about this Levite, this man? We know that he waits four months. She has brought disgrace upon him. She, uh, many would say, if you read the passage, she's been off, she's slept with somebody else, and she's brought disgrace. She's now run around, she's brought disgrace. But he is lazy and slow. He's not taking the initiative as a man. She's not going to feel wanted, cherished. And I sometimes think, how good are we as men on this Father's Day of taking initiative? When we hear about our homes being hospitals or castles, do we take the initiative or not? This guy is easily swayed. You could read about that in chapter 19, verse 5. He gets up to go, but on day four, he just eats and drinks some more. I guess it's a picture of so many of us men that we can put off today what we can avoid until tomorrow. I don't understand this part of the story. He sent his concubine out in chapter 19 of verse 25. Basically, the man hides. He plays chicken. I don't understand what they were thinking. If you read the passage, they asked for sex with a man. He had a male servant, and yet he still sent out his concubine. He was hiding behind the woman, not accepting leadership that he should have done. He's called master rather than husband. I cannot begin to understand this passage. He has obviously slept the night. Think about this. You're in a strange place, you've been under attack, and the passage literally says he gets up in the morning. He's forgotten about her, he has gone to bed, he has slept well. I know that when we had our children, I honestly thought they managed to sleep all night, every night. I remember the first week when uh, Nikki brought Josh home. I said, isn't that amazing? He's one week home and he's gone the whole way through the night. She said, I've woken up every hour on the hour. <laughs> I was fast asleep. She'd turn the light on, she'd feed. I just abandoned my duties. I'd just like to say for those that are worrying, my wife shared about why her dad rescued her on the motorway. I was out of the country. That, it wasn't that... <laughs> It wasn't that there was a football game on. <laughs> it is so easy for us just to think, oh, well. He gets up and he says to her, let's go. He's more concerned about his concubine as property than as a person. And then it tells us literally in the scripture, verse, uh, chapter 19, 29, he cuts her in to 12. I'm probably stretching it a little bit here, but it hadn't told us yet that it was e she was even dead. Did he kill her or did they? Was it about his property and getting his rights or was it about care of a person? He then sends these parts, it seems utterly gross, to the 12 tribes. What's he doing? He's making himself the judge. 
He's calling the people. Yet we've just read the book of Judges. He makes himself a center stage. He's then economical with the truth in chapter 20 and verse 5. He says, they came after me. They intended to kill me. He made himself the victim. This is what I find challenging. One man, one woman affect the whole nation. We learn from this story there's no such thing as private sin. Isn't it ironic that a nameless, selfish Levite gets the greatest response in the whole book? Now, if you read it, you'd read there's only one name mentioned in the whole of the three chapters. I'm having to skip through that. The man, Levi, is not mentioned. She is not mentioned. Partly, it dehumanizes the situation so that we can relate to the picture. Partly, it's because they are a type of all men of the time. So the father-in-law is a picture of all fathers at the time. The man is a picture of all men at the time. Question to us. Do we treat women as property? Do we tell stories about ourselves that make us look better than we really are? And do we appreciate the gospel unless we totally understand how evil and wicked and desperate we are? I'm going to move on to the Israelites. Tragically, this situation has occurred before. Some of you might think, Pete, I I think I recognize some of this story. In fact, you would know that. In Genesis 19, it had happened, but it hadn't happened amongst the people of God. It had happened in a place called Sodom. Actually, there wasn't this mass murder that went on. The angels blinded the men so they were unable to do what they were able to do. And it was always considered a picture in the history of rebellion to God and judgment from God. But what do we discover about the, the Israelites here? We discover this. The Benjamites would not listen. Their brothers came to point out their sin, but they were blinded by loyalty, unable to see the error of their ways. They decide, instead of backing down and apologizing, that they want to fight. The problem with this whole story is that the real enemy... Yet the people never figured out who the real enemy was in the book of Judges, so they spent so much time fighting in the wrong place. Is that true of us? They're confident in their own army. They think they've got numbers. They think we're going to do it. They are slow to pray. They almost destroy this tribe. 600 escape. They say rash words. The Israelites remember are a picture of the people of God. Oh yeah, it's not us sitting here saying, oh, they're like that out there. It's God saying, what are we like in here? There was no one righteous, not even one. The Gibeonites may have tried to bury their past sin. The Levite failed to prevent sin. So I guess the challenge for us Is this the idol of my family or my country? Stop me from seeing what is right and wrong. Do I put racial ties above common good? Has my bitterness meant that I react in harshness rather than forgive? Because I think you could see that from here. We see in the whole book of Judges, a society where God is not centered, they worship something else. They decide right and wrong and make it up as their own standards. 
They wonder why things don't seem to get better, and they decide that if God exists, he does not care. Point three, character three. This is where the hope comes in. I say the hope, there is no king. How do we understand this whole story? Well, if you have got your Bible and you look at chapter 19, verse 1, it says this, in those days, Israel had no king. And then if you flip over, and it said it on the the video that I showed, chapter 21 and verse 25, the last verse of the book says this, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. So what we've basically discovered from the book of Judges is that we realize what it's like to live without a king. We've realized that they would need to come without being called because so many of them are not looking for God. And that's true of us today. He first loved us. We've had to realize that he, the judge, will do it all and that we have nothing to offer to our salvation. We, we realize from the book of Judges that the great deliverer will probably do it in weakness, even his own death. We saw that with Samson last week. We understand that we're going to need a king that's not just going to purge evil from society, but it's going to purge evil from our own hearts. And we need a permanent king because the cycle keeps going on. So a human cannot deliver us. So the message, surely, of the book of Judges is this. God must be our king. In fact, when you read it, the next couple of books in the Bible, 1 Samuel and the prophet appoints a king, he's weeping. And he said, oh God, I don't want to give him a king. And God says this in 1 Samuel, it is not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. So my, my challenge to us this morning is, do you accept Jesus as your king? Are you going through the book of Judges? Sorry, going through life like the book of Judges? Autonomous, I just do what's right in my own eyes? Or are you accepting Jesus as your king? In John 19, I think we have a very clear picture that Jesus came as a king. Even Pilate saw this. It says in 19 verse 1, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe. They, they mocked him, but they mocked him because they thought, hey, you're claiming to be king. How do you react to the claims of Jesus Christ? Are you saying, oh, this judge was just a long time ago? Or will you accept Jesus as your king today? What was really sad to me is not that Pilate mocked him, but that the people rejected him. In John 19, verse 5, Pilate says to the Jews, here is your king. They shouted, take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The priests answered. What this book says and the challenge I want to bring to all the men today is, will you have Jesus as your king. Radical men live with Jesus on the throne. Now you might say, oh Pete, that's really heavy. Could you just give me one nice morsel for Father's Day? I'll give you this. What was the tribe that was almost wiped out? Benjamin. 
Where did the first king come from? The tribe of Benjamin. Isn't it amazing? God in his grace raises up Saul, who was the first king from this tribe that had done wrong. But that's, that's the grace of God, and that's the thread that we always find. And you might think, oh, Pete, I feel like I've messed up big time. The Benjamites have messed up big time. But God in his grace said, the first king comes from there. And what about the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 out of 27 books of the New Testament, which tribe was he from? Oh, the Benjamin. So actually, it wasn't just he was going to raise up a king for that nation. He was going to raise up an apostle to take the gospel to the ends of the earth because grace works like that. And so if you think even if it's my God, I've messed up and he's not my king, the message of judges is this. Man is not great, but God is gracious. And he comes now as your king to say, come on, do you want to get involved in this story? Happy Father's Day. I'm going to suggest now all the men kneel. If you're able to, let's kneel before Jesus as our king. Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace. One man allowed this to happen. But the whole nation then raped and kidnapped a whole village. It was just sin upon sin. But in your grace, you still come and you use. God, we want to come and say, God, we don't want to live a life messed up, an autonomous life where we do our own thing that's right in our own eyes. Instead, we want to come before you and say, will you be king? King of our lives. We're sorry for what we've done wrong. Please forgive us. Thank you that because of Jesus Christ, because the the one who wore the crown of thorns, we can be known, we can know forgiveness and life. We pray that you'd make us radical men where Jesus is on the throne of our lives. Amen.